This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. In the midst of a bid to move away from its troubled internal culture, broadcasting company MediaWorks hired some new people for its news and talk radio this week. But it was the sudden retirement of a controversial host who was the talking point for its listeners. It's a disaster because New Zealand is in the hands of a cabal. We look at that later, but first, almost 20 years to the day since 9-11 prompted the US to invade Afghanistan and push the Taliban out of power. The Taliban declared this week they've taken over all of Afghanistan again. And now they've made it official by declaring the country an Islamic emirate with, surprise, surprise, an all-male government. And among those who could now be targeted by the Taliban now they're back in charge, the journalists. Do you really think the Taliban will keep any agreement? They wait till you draw down your forces while they gather theirs in the villages and in the mountains. And then it will be Saigon all over again. Your embassy under siege, helicopters taking off from the roof, every fool who ever worked for you massacred in the street. Anyone who's been filling their lockdown downtime lately by binge-watching the final series of the US spy show Homeland might have found its fictionalised account of the US trying to get out of Afghanistan in a hurry pretty prescient. What about the embassy, even just non-essentials? We start evacuating non-essentials, we turn a panic into full-on hysteria. As it happens, the Taliban took over last month without massacres in the streets of Kabul, but getting people out who feared the Taliban provided dramatic stories of improvised rescue illustrated with dramatic NZDF images and footage. And among them was an exclusive in the New Zealand Herald, which described a grandmother in a wheelchair who had to be hauled out from the crowd via a sewage-filled ditch. But while the Prime Minister said 390 people were safely evacuated by New Zealand forces, Afghan translator Bashir Ahmad, who worked for the NZDF in Bamiyan province and came to New Zealand some years ago, told Morning Report that he knew of 36 more people who were still stuck in Afghanistan. No, everything is not good. Security is not good. Our, our financial situation is just zero it's all in all bad. And as Gordon Campbell pointed out on scoop.co.nz, authorities here haven't provided a breakdown of those evacuees. How many of the people were already New Zealand citizens? How many were just contractors? And how many Afghan citizens whose previous service for the NZDF has now put them and their family members in danger? For those who are left behind, the chances of getting out soon seem even slimmer. And the end of 20 years of US occupation was witnessed by the BBC's veteran correspondent, Lise Doucette. All day we had heard the American warplanes circling above the city, flying low as we thought the last American flights were taking off, providing extra cover in these last decisive hours. Now, remarkably, Lise Doucette was also there 32 years ago when Soviet forces pulled out in winter after their unsuccessful occupation that lasted almost a decade. And only a relatively small band of journalists remains to keep the world in touch with the drama of Kabul. Canadian correspondent Lise Doucette is one of them. No one can say with any certainty what's going to happen in Afghanistan next month or in the coming months. But many Afghans fear that as the Soviets are on their way out, and that the world's media will be following them, and the Western missions have closed, that most people aren't going to care. Well, 30 years on, Blees Doucette and others still in Afghanistan are asking the same question. 
Now, the last time the Taliban were in charge, between 1996 and 2001, the press was heavily controlled and independent journalism almost impossible. And after the US ousted the Taliban 20 years ago, local and international media flourished in Afghanistan, but now their future's far from clear. The day before that suicide attack outside Kabul's airport, the BBC's Lise Doucette was distressed to find pioneering female journalist Wahida Faizi on the tarmac at Kabul airport trying to get out. I believe they will kill me. You'll be okay. I believe they will kill me. Why will they kill you? Because you're a woman? Because you're a journalist? Why will they kill you? I advocate for another woman journalist. Wahida Faizi has reportedly reached Denmark safely since then, but in the meantime, the Taliban have been getting to know the reporters who are still there, such as the New Zealander Charlotte Bellis, who reports from Kabul for the global channel Al Jazeera. Mujahid stated journalists should remain free and independent to critique the group so it can improve. For Afghans on all sides, there is a lot of healing ahead. Last weekend here on Sunday morning, Charlotte Bellis told Jim Moore that as Al Jazeera is based in Qatar, where the Taliban have a political office, that puts her in a better position, she said, than journalists working for other international outlets to challenge the Taliban and even, from time to time, to offer them a bit of media advice. I've said to the Taliban, you've got a real problem here because if if you're going to be successful in running the country, you need people to trust you and you need to build that trust. And you need to be transparent and and authentic and do as much media as you can to try and reassure people. But it's pretty clear now that the Taliban already do know a bit about handling the media. The Taliban's slick spokesperson Abdul Kahar Balki told Charlotte Bellis they were grateful to New Zealand for offering financial aid to Afghanistan, which was reported on TVNZ like this. New Zealand has been the first, the leading country, uh, as it has always been, during humanitarian causes, has been the leading country to announce a humanitarian aid to the Afghan people. I would like to immensely thank the people of New Zealand and the government of New Zealand for showing empathy uh, with their fellow human beings. But that money is for the UN agencies and the Red Cross and Red Crescent operations. And that prompted the former chief of the UN Development Programme, Helen Clark, to call into News Talk ZB's Kerry McIver last week to say Charlotte Bellis and New Zealanders were being spun. So they use social media to, to spread you know, their propaganda, and there's a, there's a hard cop uh, angle to that and the soft cop. So the cop, soft cop is, let's look, look good by sort of saying, oh, isn't it wonderful aid's coming? And it implies when journalists run these stories that, that governments are supporting the Taliban, which of course is far from the truth. And all this does raise questions about just how the media which remain in Afghanistan should deal with an outfit which turfed the recognised government, which New Zealand fought for, out of power and whose real intentions are not yet known. And when the focus moved to negotiating with the Taliban for the safe exit of people with New Zealand visas still stuck there, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen asked Charlotte Bellis this. Why are we signing deals with with the Taliban like this and validating them when they are completely untrustworthy? Uh, Well, that's a controversial statement. (laughs) Is it controversial Uh, to say that the Taliban are untrustworthy, is it? No, but I don't think, A, we haven't signed a deal with them. Um, A number of countries led by the US came to an agreement that they wouldn't hurt anybody in leaving. And deals like that have been made for the last three years as part of negotiations between the US and the Taliban. And for the most part, the Taliban has stuck to the deal that they made with the Americans in uh, Doha. So 
they have actually been working with the Americans this entire time to facilitate the exit of not just Americans and uh, other allied countries, but also New Zealanders, and I've witnessed that firsthand. Well, Heather Duplessis-Allen was right to be sceptical, but Charlotte Bellis was also right. For years, the Afghan government, the Taliban and Western powers have been doing deals, often in Doha, where Al Jazeera is based. Our media paid little attention to that, even when our forces were still there during the Afghanistan war. But Charlotte Bellis's Al Jazeera certainly did report on all that. Well, another one who knows a bit about all that is Peter Grester. He was the BBC's correspondent in Afghanistan in the mid-1990s when the Taliban was poised to take over for the first time. And then he was jailed for months in Egypt on trumped-up charges, along with local colleagues, when the regime there decided that it didn't like the reporting of Al Jazeera. So will international reporters like Charlotte Bellis be able to challenge the Taliban on how they run the country from now on? And... What can the world do now to make sure that local and foreign media are safe from persecution? Make it abundantly clear to the Taliban that they need to stick to their promises to protect journalists and media workers and let them continue to work. Now, I appreciate that's uh, a difficult thing to do. I also appreciate that the the Taliban's words and their actions don't always align. But at the very least, we we need to start with that. Um, I also think we need to make sure that we maintain communications with them. Um, That's obviously the beauty of social media and the internet. We need to leverage that. We need to use all of the tools that we can to make sure that we're across exactly where they are and what's what's happening to them. And in fact, I'm I'm already talking to a number of uh, organizations about setting up um, an Afghan media freedom tracker that will monitor any incidents um, that limit the work that journalists do, any restrictions, any attacks, any assault. And the other thing I think we need to be doing is giving visas to any journalists that want to get out. Now, I I appreciate that it's almost impossible at the moment, um, particularly with the door shutting very, very quickly at Kabul airport. And even if they do severely restrict the movement of journalists and media workers, Um, Afghanistan's borders are are Swiss cheese. Um, It's not always easy to get across, but it is is possible. For a country like Afghanistan, uh, it's geographically complex, linguistically complex. When you first went there back in 1994, you would have really needed people with local expertise, translators, fixers. Those people are really important, aren't they? Yeah, you can't possibly operate without them. Good good translators will, will help you not just translate the the words, but also help you understand the context, the cultural and political and historical context. So media workers across Afghanistan have been absolutely vital. Uh, To simply, you know, give refuge just to journalists, just to those people who have their bylines on stories um, or their faces on air um, is simply not enough. And the Taliban know know that. They've been working very hard to try and identify not just the journalists, but also the support staff. Do you think the Taliban are likely to victimise people who have been associated with international uh, media organisations? I think that there is a very, very serious chance that they will. There's been an obvious gap between what the Taliban say, the rhetoric that's been coming out of um, a lot of the senior spokespeople who insist that they are uh, prepared to let journalists continue to operate and women continue to, to work. And a lot of the really troubling reports of um, attacks by uh, Taliban fighters on the ground, um, stories of, of Taliban going door-to-door looking for, for uh, journalists or, or members of their family. 
there is still a chance now, though, that the Taliban may actually recognise that if they take that approach, then they're going to they're going to really struggle. And of course, watching the way that they treat journalists is, is I think going to be a really important barometer of, of the way that they, they 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 plan to operate. Yeah, in the, some of the New Zealand coverage, uh, reporters have talked about. Uh, a Taliban charm offensive, that's a phrase they use. And we've seen footage of press conferences and stand-ups where they have fluent English-speaking um, spokespeople. Do you find it a bit alarming that the media will just hear fluent English-spoken uh, in the sort of public relations talk that the spokespeople are obviously capable of and seem convinced that this is a different outfit? I mean, I think it's indicative of the changes that the Taliban have gone through, the lessons that they've learned. They've been incredibly adept at using social media. They've started. They've understood the importance of communication. They've come a long way. You know, they've become a lot more sophisticated politically and ideologically. What we don't know is whether the, whether that has filtered down to the core of the organisation. You know, there are an awful lot of fighters, an awful lot of hardline commanders who are pretty unsophisticated. They're from the villages of you know the Pashtun villages. It's too early to say whether, in fact, they've changed as well or if they haven't changed, whether in, whether the ideology, the overall ideology of the organisation has evolved to the point where they are prepared to, to compromise and accommodate others, including journalists. Al Jazeera Charlotte Bellis, who they know is a New Zealander, sat down with the Taliban spokesperson for an interview, and he volunteered that he felt very warm towards New Zealand and had given $3 million to the Red Cross to aid and assist uh, Afghanistan, and that this was typical of New Zealand and its uh, generous international outlook and so on. Uh, you know, diplomatic spin coming from the Taliban. There really is a danger, isn't there, that if you just have a regime that tells countries like ours what they want to think about the Taliban, that, you know, we could indeed be spun by it. You know, you forget that the country is has mobile phone network, it has social media networks. It's not easy, but it is possible to find out what's going on in those regions. And I think it's going to be very difficult for them to hold that mirage, if indeed it, it, it is a mirage. I agree that we need to be very, very sceptical in whether those actions align with the rhetoric. I'm not prepared at this point to write them off as as unworkable. I think we need to acknowledge the realities of what just happened in Afghanistan. Uh, Peter, I made one really brief trip there uh, back in 1996. It was shortly before, just coincidentally, before the Taliban rolled into Kabul, but it was just after your spell there. But I don't think there was any local television at all. Uh, in fact, very little local media. Uh, Bilal Sawari, who speaks on RNZ National as, as their correspondent, uh, was talking about Tolo News and outfits like that, a local media scene that's that's thrived and flowered in the past 20 years without the Taliban. Do you think all that's at risk now? Um, I do think it's at risk. I mean, let's go back to 1995-96. So it was an incredibly underdeveloped media network back then. One of the great successes of the last decade or two has been that incredible flowering, as you said, of of local media. Western organisations, Western donors um, and Afghans have understood that, that having a free media um, is one of the most important aspects of having a functioning society. You need a free, independent, robust and fearless media. And uh, Afghans have really taken to that with incredible enthusiasm. The, the, the number of outlets, the number of journalists um, is just is just phenomenal, producing not just news and current affairs, but also entertainment programs. You can't put that genie back in its bottle, um, certainly not without 
some serious consequences. Working for Al Jazeera, uh, you know, in Egypt, you encountered a, a regime that wasn't afraid to, uh, you know, imprison a foreign reporter along with um, your local colleagues. Um, do you worry about people like Charlotte working for international media outlets that if the Taliban's attitude to them and the work they do sours that you know they could find themselves targets? Of course um, I worry enormously for Charlotte um, and, and also the staff that work with her. As a foreign correspondent I think you actually do enjoy more protection than most other journalists the local journalists. Experience in Egypt as you know I was imprisoned in Egypt um, by the Egyptian government if my name had been Mohammed and not Peter, if I'd been Egyptian and not an Australian, um, there wouldn't have been anywhere near the kind of outrage. And the consequences for the government would have been um, negligible if, if, if there had been anything at all. I think to a certain extent, because of her profile, because of her reputation, Charlotte does enjoy a degree of protection and security that just doesn't exist for, for a lot of local journalists. Now, I'm not suggesting that's no reason to worry, she also understands, and Al Jazeera also will have a lot of security arrangements in place to make sure that not just she's protected, but also their um, operations protected. And that's the kind of security protection um, and, and, and equipment that very few other local journalists are able to afford as well. You know, it's not as if they're completely naive. It's not as if they're un- unprepared for it. Um, and as I said, they're, they're much better off than most of the locals. Peter Grester, a former BBC correspondent in Afghanistan who was jailed for more than a year reporting for Al Jazeera in Egypt in 2014 and who's now the UNESCO Chair in Journalism at the University of Queensland and also the author of the book The First Casualty, a memoir from the front lines of the global war on journalism. As we've heard here on Media Watch recently, broadcasting company MediaWorks is in the throes of what its boss and its board promise will be a major transformation of its business after a damning independent review of its internal culture commissioned by the chief executive who took over late last year, Cam Wallace. Last month, the chair, Jack Matthews, resigned. It also parted ways with controversy courting presenters John Banks and Sean Plunkett earlier this year. And then Duncan Garner resigned suddenly this month as the host of the AM show. In the company's words, effective immediately. So immediate, in fact, it was left to his former co-hosts like Amanda Gillies to break the news to listeners and viewers last week. He has a ridiculous big heart and he's incredibly loyal. When we first hosted Story Together, it was actually my first presenting gig, he physically held my hand right up until we went on air. He knew I was nervous. And this week it was announced that some new people were incoming. Dallas Gurney, a former executive at rival broadcaster News Talk ZB, will take over as director of news and talk at MediaWorks later this month. News Hub's former Europe correspondent Lloyd Burr will present the Magic Talk Drive show, replacing Ryan Bridge, who's replaced Duncan Garner. But at the very end of that statement, MediaWorks on Monday also slipped in news of another unexpected departure. And that was how the new changes at talk radio station Magic Talk made the station's own bulletin last Monday morning. 
A raft of changes have been announced for Magic Talk. Peter Williams has retired from hosting the station's mid-morning show. He says after nearly half a century in the media industry, he wants to enjoy a life with fewer commitments. And wanting a quieter life is understandable. Peter Williams' last three years on air have generated a fair bit of noise at times. At Magic Talk, Peter Williams became one of the media's most vocal climate change sceptics, and when COVID hit, he often aired the COVID scepticism of his listeners and occasionally endorsed it like this. Uh, Now the test subjects were being experimented on, and it just doesn't sit well with me, so I will not take it. Yeah, Gordon, that's precisely what I think about it as well. And in February this year, Peter Williams was casting his own doubts on the Pfizer vaccine like this. Uh, That's the thing about COVID-19 in this country. For all intents and purposes, we do not have it. Uh, And for that, we should be very thankful. And indeed we are. But it just begs the question, why are we rushing to line up to get a shot in the arm? Do we really need it? Well, six months later, it turns out we really do. When criticised for this sort of thing, Peter Williams used to say he was just asking questions, and that's allowed in a free country with a free media. But Peter Williams took it up a notch when he urged people to check out a prominent anti-vaccination group earlier this year. Voices for Freedom. Uh, I don't know who they are or what particular area of expertise or experience uh, they have. Uh, They referred me to their website. And again, that's asking questions similar to mine here yesterday, except uh, they appear to know far more about the science. Well, Voices for Freedom did more than just asking the same questions as Peter Williams. It's run anti-vaccination and anti-lockdown campaigns, and it's spread misinformation online, by email, and by leaflets and letterboxes, and on advertising billboards. And during last year's Level 4 lockdown in Auckland... Peter Williams also recited some conspiratorial claims picked up online before the election. On the 18th of August, and this was picked up by Cameron Slater, very uh, sharp-eyed and sharp-eared political observer uh, back then. Did she sort of know something? I mean, am I getting into wild conspiracy theories again here? It, it, It begs a question or two, doesn't it? Well, in this instance, no. Cameron Slater and Peter Williams simply misunderstood the routine procedure for dissolving Parliament before an election. Now, all this was a bit of a problem for a national network that wants to be taken seriously on important issues. Back in April this year, Media Watch's Hayden Donnell asked MediaWorks Chief Executive Cam Wallace, who'd taken over in December, if he endorsed Peter Williams' on-air approach. If you, if you take my personal views on climate change or vaccines, I mean, I think there is a unity ticket that most people on at those things uh, need to be administered and or are real. But we still have to have an open and vibrant exchange of ideas. We're not going to agree with a whole bunch of people who ring up, but as long as they're respectful and as long as we're not promoting a certain... Uh, view to our listeners, I think that's one of those subjective areas where we've just got to use our judgment. Climate change is an area I think is that it's going to continue to be talked about, but it's, I mean, the facts are clear, and this is not about um, economics, this is about science. I mean, you know, my view is that the facts are clear, but there's always going to be people who have different views, and I don't think we are ramming one certain opinion down the throat of our listeners. I, I just don't think that's the case. Anti-vaxxers love Peter Williams. I know that you say that he's not an anti-vaxxer. He's well, he, had... he's, he's said that himself. He's, having said that, he had a whole show where he invited on a whole bunch of people to 
share their concerns about the yep. COVID-19 vaccine. Yep. Uh, he's had the anti-vaxxer Sue Gray on repeatedly, yep. Voices for Freedom, an anti-vax group. They love him. They keep saying that he's one of the best broadcasters yep. in New Zealand. Is that something that you can responsibly broadcast, given the importance of people getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Um, I, I think that falls into there's different views from different people in the community about whether or not they should uh, take the vaccine. But if you look at the amount of content we have across the number of platforms, I think we can justify promoting an open and robust exchange of ideas. It doesn't mean that we agree with the people on the show. It doesn't mean we agree with the callers. We've got to be a platform which is open to having that exchange of views. I mean, if if we go down the line of saying, "Oh, we're not going to talk about COVID nineteen or vaccines," it's going to be a pretty uninteresting show. No one's saying that, right? But surely, if you're going to talk about those things, then you don't want to elevate the views of people that uh, have unscientific takes on it. If people don't take the vaccine, then people could die. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I've said before, um, Peter is not anti vaccines. Uh, he's stated that publicly. People, He's had some people on the show, some callers uh, who have different views. We don't support those views, but what we are supporting is an open exchange of views. MediaWorks Chief Executive Cam Wallace there talking to MediaWatch's Hayden Donnell about Peter Williams back in April. Was Peter Williams' sudden departure this week a result of that independent review of the company's culture that Cam Wallace commissioned? And was he, as some commentators have speculated, clearing house because of past controversies? Well, this week, Stuff quoted a statement from Cam Wallace in which he simply said Peter Williams had signalled for some time that he wished to finish up at Magic Talk and now was the right time. Cam Wallace acknowledged Peter Williams' contribution to the station and the engaging and lively discussions over the past three years. However, the change announced on Monday was not only effective immediately, this one was already in effect when the statement came 45 minutes into the Magic Talk morning show. And that meant that Peter Williams' listeners, expecting to hear him as usual, were the first to know from the fill-in host Leah Parnipa. Now I was told over the weekend that Peter, in his own words, decided to sail off to the sunset. At the age of 67 and nearly half a century in the media industry, he wants to enjoy a life with fewer commitments and made the decision to retire. But Leah Panapa was also well aware that many of Peter Williams' listeners wouldn't take her word for it. And I'm sure you will also think it wasn't Peter's decision to leave. Now, at first, Leah Panapa gamely tried to get the talk back going on the fallout from the Lynn Mall countdown attack. Of course, nobody wants more legislation. Nobody wants to go, great, we're all going to get plastic cutlery now forever. We can't buy a proper knife. But the sudden disappearance of Peter Williams easily trumped terrorism as a talkback topic for his fans. I feel a little bit less safe uh, this week than I did last week. It's in somewhere like a supermarket where at the moment, I mean, that's just one of the places everyone can go. All right. Oh, you think I'm talking about the terrorist attack? Oh, sorry. No, no, I'm talking about the cancellation of Peter Williams. Oh, I don't believe it. He suddenly woke up in the weekend and said, oh my goodness, look at the time, I'm 67 years old, I'm going to resign. And plenty of others didn't think that either. And I cannot believe that he has retired. It's a disaster because New Zealand is in the hands of a cabal, a racist Marxist cabal. And quite frankly, it cannot continue. This caller saw it as part of a bigger pattern. Has your radio station gone woke? 
First, uh, Sean Plunkett, then Tony Amos, and now Peter Williams has all been given the boot. And he wasn't the only one who reckoned that Magic Talk and Media Works had been got to by the government. Now, as this went on through the morning, Leah Parnipa started to push back. I've got to admit, I struggle a little bit with why people are concerned or worried that people don't retire. But we, but I, but I get it. I get that um, we live in a world where nobody leaves a job. We live in a world where everyone's cancelled. We live in a world where nobody believes the truth or, or we have to question everything. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's where we're at at the moment. Well, that's certainly where Magic Talk has ended up, and it can't have surprised MediaWorks that the absence of a host who encouraged conspiratorial thinking would have an audience that would respond the way it did once he was gone. Now, making this even more of a trial on Monday for successor Leah Panapa was problems with Magic Talk's phone system. You there, Leah? Yeah, we're having a little issue with delay yeah, on our phones. Um... Sorry. And that left poor old Leah Panapa a little exasperated. What a nice baptism of fire today was, let me tell you. Couldn't have gone any better. Oh, lovely. Peter's gone. Phones don't go. Getting lots of love texts. Boy, this is great for day drinking, let me tell you. Um... And I shall keep talking just to upset you even more. Though one caller at least was sympathetic. Circumstances in which you are in that daytime drinking is not only permitted, it's actually advisable. <laughs> I think if you call your doctor... Good uh, to know. Say, Leah, Good to know. Bottle, now for the technical troubles that were plaguing the programme on Monday, Leah Panapa suggested this. Have you, have you plugged it in again? Maybe that's all we need to do. Unplug and plug in. And whether it is a coordinated strategy from the top down or not, MediaWorks, under its newish management, had effectively unplugged its radio station and plugged it back in again. A near three-year swing to the right at Magic Talk hasn't been as crowd-pleasing as they'd hoped, and it's damaged its credibility as a source of genuine information and debate. Allowing people to ask questions is part of talk radio's role, even at the risk of confusing or occasionally misinforming some listeners. But it should also have a role in steering people towards answers with reference to a few facts as well. One of the former hosts at Magic Talk's forerunner, Radio Live, was Marcus Lush, who's now the nighttime host at News Talk ZB. And last Monday, the same day Peter Williams' retirement was announced, he was trying to convince caller Bob that he was wrong to refuse the COVID-19 vaccine just because one woman aged over 90 has died during the current outbreak. Bob, Bob, you've got to get with the programme, mate. I mean, there's people here really trying to fight with this pandemic and get it sorted out. There's people in hospitals all around the world that have got essential cancer treatment and things like that that they need to get, but they can't get them because the hospitals are inundated with the unvaccinated that have got COVID. You're not making any sense. That's all I want. Well, go online and get an answer. You don't want an answer. You just want to ring up the radio and be a bit of a tool and say, oh, well, I want answers. Well, Marcus Lush later told his listeners he wasn't sure if he'd handled that call very well. But at the end of it, Bob and hopefully other listeners got the right message as well. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media on Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Brian Crump. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.